This morning, we're going to be continuing our look at the book of Colossians. We're at the, in the last section of chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about something that I, th- I think is probably best phrased this way, or certainly this is one of the ways we could phrase it, is the idea that beating yourself up won't earn you extra credit with God. Now, I don't know if you're adept at beating yourself up. I don't know if that's something that you've noticed as a pattern. I think for most of us, we probably spend a lot of time beating ourselves up, sometimes over past mistakes, sometimes over present mistakes, sometimes over things that we wish that we could do better, that we just don't seem quite adept at. And when you look at the portion of Scripture we're about to look at, you have the Apostle Paul giving us very good counsel about how we treat ourselves in light of the truth of the gospel. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians 2, and I'm going to pick up at verse 16, and I'm going to read down to verse 23, and this is what it says. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at it together today. We're just grateful, Lord, that we have the privilege to be able to start off our week looking at what your word states and thinking about the things that you reveal to us here in a passage like this. And Lord, we pray that you'd help our minds and our hearts to understand the very things that we're reading and thinking about this morning, we pray that these would be things that we would realize have a direct application to our daily lives and the nature of our walk with you. And even just the quality of how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ, all of these things are impacted by what we believe about the portion of Scripture and the content that the Scripture speaks about. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and that by your grace we would grow in our relationship with you as a result and that we would apply your gospel to our lives in every context. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. What pleases God? Why don't you just think about that question for a second? What pleases God? Have you ever attempted to to answer that question, if you ever wrestle with that, what pleases God? You know, and I think a lot of times when people are asking that question, they're, they're really saying, what do I need to do to please God? I think that's typically how we're phrasing that in our mind. And, uh, and I, I also wonder if the message that we're preaching to our own hearts, if it lines up with the truth of the gospel and what the gospel actually teaches us about how God is pleased. And I bring that up because I've noticed something. One of the things that I, that I have the opportunity to do as a pastor. I've been serving as a pastor 
for about 25 years now, and in that time, I've had the opportunity to officiate for many funerals, more funerals than I know what to do with. In fact, when I was pastoring in Northeast Pennsylvania, there was a funeral home in town that, that started asking me to do funerals for anyone that came to them that did not already have a pastor. So in, in, in addition to serving my church and serving people that I knew, I also started serving that, that funeral home, and basically, I, most of the time, I would just agree to officiate for funerals, even if I didn't know the people. And so I've officiated for funerals for most of my grandparents uh, and many other family members. I've officiated for the funerals of friends. I've officiated for the funerals of church members. I've officiated for the funerals of a whole bunch of people that, that I did not know personally. And whenever I officiate for a funeral or whenever I speak at a funeral, I inevitably discover what some of the people, in fact, what many of the people in the room are under the impression will please God. It inevitably comes up in that context. People talk about what they think will please God. And I'll tell you something that's kind of tragic about that experience, because in my experience, I've noticed that, that most people seem to believe that either the fruit of their labors or the ways in which they have treated others or the things they've avoided, at least publicly, um, will earn them points in God's scoring system. That's what most people are kind of judging their life by. That's what most people are looking at their life and saying, all right, if I avoid these things, if I treat people this way, if I, if I do this with my time, that's somehow going to earn me points in God's scoring system. And then I also hear people talk about this idea that, that maybe some of the suffering that they have endured might earn them some points in God's economy as well. And so these are the type of things that, that people tend to focus on. But you know what that is? Each of those examples, and I'm not saying that any one of those examples in and of themselves is a bad thing. You know, the things you suffer or the labor you do or, or uh, the people that you treat well, like those are all good things, right? But if your faith is in those things, then your faith is in effort, not in God. So you don't want your faith to be in your efforts. You want your faith to be in God. Now, admittedly, I've walked down that path as well, and I, I remember when I was growing up, I had the impression that salvation might essentially come down to basically the last thing you did while you were on this earth. And the way I think I reasoned it in my mind at the time was, was something like this. So I, I remember I was convinced that if you smoked, that if you drank, or that if you swore, or if the last action you took on this earth was sinful, you were out of the kingdom. And uh, you know how when you're a kid, you have a hard time differentiating between like a movie and reality sometimes in your mind? And I remember, you know, I'd be watching action movies and different things, and, and then inevitably somebody would get shot or something like that in an action movie, and the last thing they would say before, before they died was a swear, and I was like, <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a bad choice of words on your way out, sir. Bad choice. And I remember, I, literally, that would be what would cross my mind. I'd be like, why did you choose that word? It's like, how do you know you won't choose that word? You know, if, 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 like, if, if your salvation comes down to the last thing you utter right before you die, it's like, what metric was I using? It was basically another way to have faith in effort, right? Or faith in the things we do more so than faith in what Christ has done for us. So let's answer the question How is God pleased? How is He pleased? Well, Scripture reveals that he is pleased when he is trusted. Just think about that for a second. He's pleased when he's trusted. Scripture makes it clear that genuine faith pleases God. Not faith in our efforts, not faith in our avoidances, but faith in Jesus Christ 
who graces us with His righteousness when we trust in Him. Now, I believe that genuine faith in Christ is going to bear all kinds of good fruit. Uh, I believe it'll bear the fruit of worship, genuine worship. I believe faith in Christ will bear the fruit of better relationships with others. I, I can think of many examples in my life where my relationships with other people drastically improved as my faith in Christ grew. I also think that genuine faith in Christ results in obedience to the Lord's instruction. That if I, if I trust in the Lord, if I'm sincere about that faith, I do think that that's going to have an impact on what I choose to do with my life, how I, I, I listen to the Word of God or reject the Word of God. I think that that's going to be impacted by my trust in Jesus Christ. But it's a hard thing to convince a lot of people of that. And uh, in fact, I would say that there's a large faction of humanity that is convinced that basically the way in which you please God is beating yourself up in one way or another, and somehow that will earn you extra credit in God's eyes, or earn you favor from God, as if the favor of God is something that could be earned. In fact, that's a very unbiblical concept, right? And that's an issue that Paul addresses directly in the portion of Scripture that we just read together. And so we're going to revisit this. And the way I'm going to do this today as we look at this is I'm going to ask four questions that I hope that as I ask these generally, we will ask these things of ourselves specifically. Because by asking these questions, it's a pretty logical way to apply some of the things that the Apostle Paul is bringing up in this passage. And I actually think it can help us wrestle with some of the topics that he was trying to help the church at Colossae to wrestle with. And so the first question I'm going to ask today is this, with this, this theme in mind, right? On what basis do you think you're better than anyone else? So that's question number one today. On what basis do you think you're better than anyone else? Let me reread verses 16 and 17. You'll see why I'm asking that question. Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So it's interesting, I think, when you look at the Apostle Paul's words, uh, especially when you look at some of the, the cautions and some of the teaching and some of the direction that he was giving uh, the early church, it, it's very interesting to observe how concerned Paul was with false teaching during the days of the early church. It was clearly a problem. It was something that, that Paul wanted these young believers to be on their guard against, and uh, he realized it was something that would, in, that, that would impact their life and their faith in drastic ways. And so he cautions them all along the way to be aware of different forms of false teaching. And one of the things I've noticed, you've probably noticed this too, is that one of the, the major fruits of false teaching is a smug attitude. Just think about that for a second. A smug attitude goes hand in hand with false teaching, because if you're convinced that you possess secret knowledge or secret wisdom that isn't accessible to somebody else, you might actually start to think that you're better than that other person. You might develop a smug attitude, and that appears to have been a problem when it came to some of the legalistic teachings that, that were prevalent in the culture of Paul's day, and that's some of what I see him addressing here. By the way, it's still a problem today. It's not just a problem that Paul endured during his day. It's a problem during our day as well, and often it gets disguised as being Christian in nature, even though it isn't. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, have you ever personally experienced someone thinking that they were better than you? Do you ever have that experience where you could just tell, oh, I see how it is, like, you think you're better than me? Well, this got awkward, right? You think, have you ever experienced that? There are people in your life, I'm sure, that have treated you that way. 
And sadly, I, I almost don't even want to know the answer to this question, but has it ever occurred to you in a faith context? Because it may have. Uh, you know, when I was preparing for this week, I still remember teaching, or well, I was being asked to speak at a church years ago. It was a church that was, at, for a brief season of time, they were without pastoral leadership, and so they had asked me to fill the pulpit for them one Sunday. It's actually quite a while ago at this point. And uh, I agreed to do it. And when I arrived, I remember a, a member of the staff of that church pulling me aside and asking me a bunch of questions just prior to the worship service beginning. And in asking me those questions, he realized that I was not part of the denomination that that church was from. And by the way, I won't say what denomination it was, but it's a denomination that kind of has a history and a reputation for being pretty legalistic. And, um, you know, in my mind, I wasn't really thinking about that stuff, but he definitely was. And when he discovered that I wasn't part of their brand, he actually froze. We were in the entryway of the church. He, he froze for a second. He just looked at me with shock, and I was like, oh, no. Like, I was just wondering in my head, what's going to happen next? And, uh, and he wasn't really sure what to do. He did not want to allow me to speak. This is, right, this is moments before the worship service started. And he did not want to allow me to speak, but I think he felt stuck because they were only minutes away, and he didn't have a plan B, and so he looks at me. This was his, this was his smug reply. He goes, he goes, I guess it will be okay. What a weird welcome. Like, could you imagine if this morning, I don't know, those, there's a few of you that are brand new with us today. If you, uh, if, if you walked into our church for the first time today, and you showed up, and in the back, I was like, hey, uh, I guess it's okay that you're here. I don't know. It's kind of cold out there. You might as well be in some building, you know? That's how I, I you know, can you imagine if a church did that? that? That was my greeting. I was the speaker that Sunday, and that was my greeting. I guess it will be okay. I guess it will be okay. And I thought, what do you think I'm going to get up there and say? Like, why did you ask me to speak here to begin with? You must be familiar with my beliefs. Uh, but regardless, I guess it will be okay. It was awkward. Definitely made me feel like I was a lesser Christian because I wasn't part of their brand. And I thought, okay, you know, thankfully things went well. I think he changed his opinion by the end of the service, but he provided me a good illustration for the rest of my life, you know? <laughs> but when you look at Colossae, it appears that there were some people in that context who had a habit of looking down on others who didn't share some of their beliefs and practices. And you can see Paul addressing that here in the way he phrases some of these things. And so you have some of these young believers. They're new in their faith. They're young in their faith. That's a very tender time in a person's faith. And you're going to be directly impacted by the ways in which people treat you during any season of life, but particularly when you're a young believer. So you have these young believers being treated in a condescending way by certain people in that, in that city, certain people in that culture, because they didn't maybe observe some of the same festivals or eat in a way that aligned with some of the beliefs of those who were looking down on them, who were judging them. And this experience here that these early believers were going through, it's actually something that was demonstrating something very consequential about the faith of those who made these believers feel somewhat dismissed. Their faith, it wasn't a faith in God, it wasn't a faith in Jesus Christ, it was a faith in checklists. It's a faith in arbitrary rules. And it's very easy for people of any generation to slip into that kind of perspective. And in some ways, you could look at, the, at, at what they were doing, you could say, well, basically, I guess your faith was more in the creation than the creator. Things that, that you know, the creation does, things that they themselves were doing. And because their faith was in their own righteousness, 
Their actions demonstrated that they were not filled with the Spirit of God. And the result was, instead of building others up, they had a habit of tearing other people down because they're not filled with the Spirit of God, so they're not going to build people up, they're going to tear people down. And that's what they were doing. Instead of making the lives of other people better, they thought of themselves as better than other people. And it was a pattern that Paul noticed, and it was a pattern that Paul was aware of, and it was probably something he had also personally experienced, and so he cautions the early church to be aware of this. The church at Colossae, he, he warns them to be aware of this. And so that's something I think we can wrestle with as well and just ask the question, on what basis do you think you're better than anyone else? Because if in your mind you're preaching to yourself that you are better than anyone else, you're missing something key about the gospel. And you could easily turn into some of these people that the Apostle Paul is describing in this portion of Scripture that went around with this smug attitude, legitimately thinking that they were better than another person. Here's a second question for us today. How much pain do you think you need to endure to earn God's favor? Hint, hint, you can't earn God's favor. But I just want to ask, how much pain do you think you need to endure to earn God's favor? Because I'll tell you what, one of the most common false beliefs, one of the most common false gospels that people preach to their hearts in this world is this idea that you need to endure pain to, to, uh, to earn the favor of God. It's a very common belief. Let me reread what Paul says in verses 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. We're going to come back to that word. He says, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up. So you see that smugness, right? Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So theologians and people that study this portion of Scripture and study, uh, you know, what life was like in Colossae, there's actually a lot of debate about the nature of the false teaching that was prevalent in that city. At one point, people thought that maybe it was a form of Gnosticism, and then some other people think maybe it's something else. So people debated a little bit. But some of the clues as to what those false beliefs included are referenced in these verses, because you see different things that are referenced here. And so for starters, it involved some form of asceticism. Now, I don't know if you automatically knew what asceticism was when I read that word, but basically, asceticism involves treating the body in an overly harsh manner or an overly severe manner for religious reasons, right? Because you're thinking that it's going to accomplish some religious purpose, and so you just treat the body in some sort of harsh and uh, oftentimes physically painful way. We also know that the false belief that, that they were wrestling with there in that city, it also involved the worship of angels, which Scripture clearly forbids, and which the holy angels themselves reject when people attempt to worship them. You see multiple examples of that in Scripture. Uh, this false belief that was prevalent, it also seemed to involve supposed religious authorities boasting about visions that they had seen, and then using those claims as a means to gain influence or authority. And the way they would do that is they would say, oh, I've had, I've had a special vision that you haven't had. Now, how does anyone prove whether you did or you didn't? And so they would, they would just claim it and just be bold about it. And if enough people believed it, then they would use that as kind of uh, their calling card or maybe something that, that fit in with their, their claims of authority or influence. But a big thing that Paul talks about here is the severe treatment of, of the body, this asceticism, this like punishing the body for, for uh, you know, some kind of religious purpose. And, um, and I just kind of wonder, maybe we can just think about it just for a second. Are you convinced that there's some form of pain that you need to inflict upon yourself 
for you to somehow earn the favor of God. Because it doesn't necessarily do us much good just to focus on the errors of those who lived 2,000 years ago. We want to think about this from our own perspective and think, all right, wait, am I actually doing some of the same things? Now, there's extreme examples of that even in present day, and maybe you're familiar with some of these, but I, I just made a brief list of, of a few examples of how some people are doing this in our day and age, and one you'll see in just a few weeks as we get closer to Easter time. But does anyone ever pay attention to the news that comes out of the Philippines right around Easter? There's a common story that's shared at Easter time out of the Philippines, and it grosses me out every time I see it. I see it every year. I, it, it comes across my news feed. I see it every year, and I think that is so dark and demented. Do you know that every year in the Philippines, there are people that volunteer to actually be nailed to cross? for a period of time. Anyone volunteering to do that? How about this? If you believed, truly believed in your heart that it would earn you the favor of God, would you do it? Some of you would. If you believed that it would earn the favor of God, and that's why they're doing it. They're doing it because they actually, they don't think it's crazy. They think that it earns the favor of God. They think it demonstrates genuine devotion to God. And so there are people that for a period of time volunteer to be as an honor. They're treated, it's honored. They're treated like it's an honorable thing. People look at them as they're more religious than others because they were, they were willing to be nailed to a cross, and they do that to somehow earn the favor of God. Sadly for them, or maybe not sadly, rejoicingly, that doesn't work, right? You don't need to do that. So if you're thinking about doing that this Easter, take that off the list, all right? And if you know anyone in the Philippines thinking about doing it, encourage them to reconsider. Um, you know, but in our present day, how about this? Scripture tells us that people have different gifts in regard to marriage and celibacy and things of, of that nature. So how about traditions that are insisting on celibacy and dietary requirements for their religious leaders, even though Scripture says that's an area of gifting, whether the Lord gifts a person to stay single and remain celibate or whether the Lord uh, gifts somebody to become married and not. This has, has to do with your gifting. It has to do with your specific calling that the Lord placed upon your life. And those that would insist upon that, I would say that's a form of asceticism. Um, I've also read stories, I actually just read one this past week, of a group of monks that thought that it was a sign of devotion to not allow themselves to sleep. And so they would do everything that they could do to avoid sleep, including tying themselves to posts so that they would be standing upright so that they could not drift into sleep. And they would do this for abnormal periods of time to rob their bodies of sleep because they believed that in some way that could either express devotion to God, and as they expressed enough devotion to God, maybe they could earn the favor of God in doing that. Some uh, religious traditions have traditions where they insist that their religious leaders avoid bathing. Aren't you glad you're not at a church like that? Um, but yes, yeah, there's some religious traditions in this world um, I didn't see any Christian tradition that emphasized that, but, but uh, some religions outside of the Christian faith that, uh, that insist on, yeah, our religious leaders, the, the most religious of, um, among us, would avoid bathing. It's like, that's a, that's a strange one. Um, some practice complete seclusion and abnormal periods of silence. Uh, in Hinduism, there used to be a practice, I don't know if people are still doing it today, but I've read about people doing it in the past, where certain people would stare at the sun until they physically became blind. They would force blindness upon themselves by staring directly at the sun for abnormal periods of time. There are other traditions that will use different forms of bodily torture, including self-laceration. And by the way, let me just throw this out there. Um, 
when you look in the Gospels and you look at how people acted when they were being either oppressed or possessed by demons, do you ever notice one of the patterns is like physical torment to the body? Like physical torture being done to the body, ways in which people are harming themselves? Do you ever look at that? Do you ever wonder if sometimes examples of that that we see in our present day might have an element of demonic influence to it? We were in an amusement park a few years ago, and I, I was, you know, you're in line for a long time, and, and uh, this stood out to my children. They couldn't believe what they had seen, but there was a girl in line with us who her, like, every inch of her arms was just covered in cuts that were healing. The, it was very obvious that every one of those cuts was intentional. And I thought to myself, I was like, I don't know what pain she's endured in her life or what emotional trauma she's gone through, but I bet you there's something. And I felt compelled, every time I think of her, it made such an impression on me and my kids, every time we think of her, we pray for her, and it's been years, I think that was 2014 when we saw that, and I prayed for that girl thinking, all right, to get to that spot where you would do that, there, there's something that's facilitating that, or it may even go deeper than that, maybe there's some spiritual oppression going on in her life, or maybe a combination of both. And I think a lot of times people go through these moments where they think that somehow you have to physically harm yourself or physically torture yourself to earn the favor of God, but is that what, is that what pleases God? Like, think about that for a second. Is that what pleases God? Why have so many people become convinced that things like that will actually please Him? I think mankind spends a lot of time trying to impress God with our suffering and trying to be acknowledged by Him for it, when we really should be thanking Him for the suffering that Jesus already did on our behalf and acknowledging that Christ's suffering was sufficient to atone for our sin. When we think that our suffering needs to be what saves the day, it's actually the fruit of a false gospel that we've been preaching to our heart. Christ's suffering was sufficient for your sin and for my sin. And Paul here references the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. He reminds us in this passage that it's, that it's through Christ that we are knit together, not torn apart, right? Knit together. Knit together as a body that becomes healthy, spiritually nourished, a body that's being taken care of, not a body that's being ripped apart, right? Torturing ourselves will never earn the favor of God. God's favor is graciously shown to undeserving people through Jesus Christ who already suffered on our behalf. What Paul's encouraging us to do in this passage of Scripture is to hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Him, He who suffered on our behalf. Third question I want to throw out there in relation to all of this. Are you living a new life or a different version of the old one? Are you living a new life or a different version of the old one? Why am I asking it that way? Look at what Paul says when you look at verse 20 down to verse 22. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So sometimes I think it can be easier to go through the motions no matter what context you're in, than it is to just stand your ground. It'd be easier to just go with the flow, go through the motions, and stand your ground. I think we see examples of this in our own lives in all kinds of contexts. In fact, I'm convinced that most people would rather put up with a whole variety of ridiculous things rather than receiving the criticism or the conflict that might result from standing up 
for what they actually believe. I think a lot of people go through motions and put up with very ridiculous things instead of standing up for their convictions. Um, can I share an example from my life where this played out? Um, I remember when I first started reading the Bible, and as I was reading the Bible, I was seeing things that I had never noticed before. When I was, there was a season prior to that, I was primarily dependent on other people reading the Bible or teaching me the Bible. I wasn't reading it for myself. When I started reading it for myself, I started noticing some things, and I came across something in Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, there's a variety of things, but in verse 7, you have Jesus explaining how prayer works. And in that portion of Scripture, he told us not to use meaningless repetition when we're praying. He says, don't, don't just pray. He said, that's what heathens do. Don't pray like that, right? He's trying to encourage us to let our prayers be genuine. So don't use meaningless repetition like heathens do. And then he gave us an example of prayer, and typically we refer to that as the Lord's Prayer, the example that he gave us. He says, look, when you're praying, pray like this. And then he genuinely prays, and his words were recorded. And when I read that, I thought, wait a second. How ironic is it that we've turned the very example Jesus gave us when he said, don't vainly recite something into something that we vainly recite? I was like, why do we do that? Isn't there irony in that? I was like, there is no more prayer that has been more vainly recited than the words Jesus gave there when he said, listen, don't pray in vain recitation. Pray like this, like from the heart, genuine. Pray like this. Let me give you an example. We're like, oh, okay, so repeat that a whole bunch of times? No, that's not what I'm getting at. And I, it's, isn't it just ironic, though, that we do the same, like we do the exact thing he said don't do? And I remember when I read that, I was like, wait a second, I've been doing that wrong. And I, I grew up in a very good church, and I'll, I'll admit, part of our, our worship service was we would, we would pray the Lord's Prayer together. Technically, we were supposed to be praying it, but I, what I realized, at least in my own life, I wasn't praying it. I was just saying it. You know, I'm sure there were people in the congregation that were genuinely praying it, but I know for me, I wasn't genuinely praying. I was just saying it. And I was like, okay, so that ends today. I, I think I mentioned last week, I'm an all-or-nothing personality sometimes, right? I was like, oh, okay, so Jesus said, don't do that, so I guess I'm not going to do that. And uh, I remember when I went to church the next Sunday, and it was time for the Lord's Prayer, and I said nothing. And the people sitting next to me were like, and I think in, in like early, like, you know, colonial days, didn't they think that made you a witch, you know? So I'm glad I didn't do that, you know, uh, in New England during a particular season of American history, because they'd be like, pretty sure that guy's a witch, right? He did not, we, he did not say the Lord's Prayer during the service. And I remember some of my family members looking at me, and they're like, everything all right? I was like, oh yeah, better than ever. And they're like... I don't think so. And, uh, and then I, I remember even my mother asked me at one point, she's like, so I noticed you didn't say the Lord's Prayer. I was like, that's correct. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, okay, so what's up with that? And I was like, well, I happen to be reading in Matthew 6 this week where Jesus said, don't pray in vain recitation. So I decided to listen to what he said. And she's like, we're praying it. I was like, I have not been praying it. I have been vainly reciting it. And I said, I'll say it again if I can genuinely pray it. But until I can get to a spot where it's not just a vain recitation, I'm just going to be silent for a little while. I'm not accusing everybody else of vainly reciting it. Maybe they're praying it, but I wasn't up to this point. And so until I could get that straight in my head, I'm, I'm done. And would it surprise you to know that some people kind of looked at that as funny, you know? People looked at that as funny, like, I, I don't know, I thought, you, I thought John loved Jesus, but he won't even say the Lord's Prayer. His faith is young. He'll get there. In the case of the Colossians, when you look at the Colossians, there was pressure on them to just go through the motions of religious exercise, right? Just, just go through the motions. Convey an outward experience or an outward expression of religious devotion. 
Whether or not that conduct is truly biblical, just go through the motions. Just do what we do. Don't make waves, right? So there were rules about what could be handled. There were rules about what could be tasted. By the way, again, those of you that attend here know that we don't have too many rules about what you can be tasted since you got served birthday cake when you came in this morning from the snack table. You're like, hey, they apparently have no rules. We want to live out the passage. That's all I'm saying, right? Uh, But they had rules about what could be handled, what could be tasted, what could be touched. And these things gave the impression of being godly. They gave the outward expression of being godly, but they had more to do with praise and attention of others than they did worshiping God. Now, here's the thing. God gives us a brand new life in Christ, and He isn't saving us so that we can keep going through the motions or the mistakes or the misunderstandings that we once had about issues of faith. He's not asking us to keep going through the same things over and over again. Once your eyes are opened up to the truth of Christ's gospel, start acting on that truth. Don't drift right back to the meaningless practices that you once embraced before you understood the nature of genuine faith. Don't go back to those things once your eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel. Live a new new life, not just a different version of the old one, not just a tweaked version of the old one. Live a new life once your understanding of the gospel becomes clear. And there's one other thing that I want to point out here, a fourth question that I think is really helpful for us as we look at this portion of Scripture. Do you want what looks good, or do you want what is good? Do you want what looks good, or do you want what is good? Look at verse 23. It says this, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's a powerful sentence, isn't it? The other day I made a a comment about a political leader to my wife, and before any of us get worried, it wasn't someone from our country, so don't don't, uh, worry that I'm I'm speaking about an American politician, even though this would be true of some of them as well, but that wasn't who I was talking about. And I said to her, I said, you know what? I said, that politician strikes me as the kind of guy who looks good, and he might be effective at winning popularity contests, but he has no idea how to actually lead people through tough moments. I said, he doesn't inspire, he doesn't enlighten, he forces his will, and then he bristles against demonstrating humility. He may look good, but he's not doing a good job at what he's been called to do. He may look good, but he's not doing good. And we were talking about that, and I was thinking about that in relation to this, because I think many supposedly religious activities operate that same exact way. They look good. But are they good? And if you're actually serious about growing as a Christian, do you want what looks good or do you want what is good? I know for me, I want what is good. What I mean by that is this. Life is too short to just go through the motions. Not interested in just going through the motions. Self-made religion, asceticism, the severe treatment of the body, the things that, that Paul is addressing here, they may appear to help people overcome their temptation to sin. That's one of the reasons that I think some of the people were in, in, engaging in these things. They thought that if I, if I beat my body up or, you know, in some respects, like if I practically burn my eyes out or if I do these different things that'll torture my body, that somehow that's going to limit my temptation to sin against the Lord. But does that actually work? It doesn't work, right? It does not work. All it does is it masks our sin, and I think in some contexts it actually provokes us to sin even more. 
it's the fruit of a false gospel. So if you're trying to overcome temptation in your life, which I would assume that all of us are, because Scripture tells us that, that the things that tempt us are common to us all. So each of us, we deal with all kinds of temptation. And if you're trying to overcome temptation in your life, start with trusting Christ, and then continue with preaching His gospel to your heart. Remind yourself of His sufficiency. Don't be a self-sufficient person. If you're a self-sufficient Christian, in the sense that you think you can just supply all you need for, for your life and godliness, you don't understand the heart of the gospel yet. Rely on Christ for His sufficiency. Tell yourself that He's the one that your heart is longing for. Seek His power in the midst of your weaknesses. And trust that He will supply everything that you need to, to overcome the things of this world that are trying to drag you back to what your life was like before you came to rely on Jesus. Beating yourself up and trying to suffer for your own sin. It really comes back to this idea that somehow we're trying to do the job of Jesus for Him. And what Christ demonstrates to us in His actions, in His teaching, and what He's demonstrated and what He calls back to our thinking through His Spirit, what He's saying to us over and over and over again is that He is sufficient. What Jesus did for you and me is a suffering that does not need to be repeated over and over and over again. He suffered once for all, the just for the unjust. And anytime we would look at ourselves or those that were practicing these things, or anytime we think, you know what, if I just beat myself up enough mentally or emotionally or physically or spiritually, if I just beat myself up enough, then God will be pleased. Then I can somehow atone for my sin. Any attempt to self-atone for our sin, it misses the heart of the gospel. Christ came to atone for it because your righteousness was not going to be enough. Because you, you can't, as an imperfect person, you can't atone for your sin because you keep piling more on. Jesus atoned for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. And what he's saying is, trust that the work I did on your behalf is sufficient to save you. Trust that what I've done for you is sufficient to save you. And I believe that if we walk in that understanding, it will have a huge impact on the quality of our life, on our understanding of the Scriptures, on our application of the Gospel, and the hopeful perspective that I, that I hope that we can go through life demonstrating and conveying as we interact with other people. That we could live a life where we demonstrate in our words and our actions that we truly believe that Jesus is sufficient. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to think about these things. And we know, Lord, that, that there are many people in this world who are, who are going through their life thinking that somehow if they beat themselves up enough or if they endure enough pain or if they do this or if they do that, that somehow they will earn your favor. And so, therefore, they demonstrate that their faith is in their action or their faith is in their avoidance, or their faith is in their religious practice. And Lord, we know that there are many people in this world that that's basically how they've chosen to go through life. That's what they think. That's how they think you operate, that you have a point system, and that it's all based on what we do or don't do, and that somehow salvation is obtained through the work of our flesh. 
But Lord, we're grateful for the teaching of your word. We're grateful for the fact that you make it abundantly clear to us that you are pleased as we trust in you. And Lord, obviously, genuine faith in you is going to change a person's behavior. It's going to change a person's action. But sometimes we get that backward. We think that we, if we change our actions, we'll, we'll receive your favor. And then we realize from looking at your word that your favor is something that you give by, by grace to people who don't deserve it. So Lord, we pray that as we think about these things, that we would exercise a healthy dose of humility. That we would think about these things in such a way that we would just recognize that, that we did not have in and of ourselves what was sufficient. And so you provided what we were lacking through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you've done that, that your son came and he suffered on our behalf. And so Lord, when we look at a portion of scripture like this that cautions us against asceticism, the severe treatment of the body, inventing checklists, all these attempts to beat ourselves up to earn extra credit with you. We pray, Lord, that we would look at this and say, wait a second, I don't need to do that. You've called us to trust in you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that that's exactly what we would do. And Lord, we pray that we would preach the message of your gospel to our hearts regularly, that this would be something that our minds and our hearts are refreshed by. Lord, we're just so thankful for the fact that we have the privilege to be able to be reminded of these things today. Lord, I pray if any of us gathered here, if anyone accessing our podcast or anyone watching the live stream or anyone interacting with this content today, Lord, we pray that if any of us has been going through a season of life where basically we, we just kind of have to admit that our faith has been more in the work of our hands than in the work you've accomplished, we pray, Lord, that you would switch that in our minds and in our hearts and that we would understand the nature of your work and all that you've done on our behalf. Thank you again, Lord, for the privilege that it is to know you. Thank you for the privilege that it is to walk with you. And thank you for the love that you've given to us. You've demonstrated it through your son. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your love and for the fact that the work that your son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross on our behalf was sufficient. And we give you the praise for all of these things today. In Jesus' name, amen.